News. 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 New York City. F A Q. Welcome to FAQ NYC. FAQ NYC. I'm executive producer Alex Brooklyn. Professor Christina Greer is in Baton Rouge this week, so she's a no-go. And Harry Siegel is here with me to interview Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez, who's here to talk about his newly unveiled Justice 2020 plan. After that, Victoria Bekempis, as usual, joins us for In the Courts. Today, she's going to talk a lot about Giuliani's divorce. So, you probably want to listen. No, you definitely want to listen. F-A-Q. So, Harry, can you give us a rundown on what Justice Justice 2020 2020 is? Justice 2020 is the ambitious action plan that District Attorney Eric Gonzalez has promised and is now delivered on, laying out how the prosecutor wants to, well, prosecute and incarcerate West people. It's a different vision for the office, and he's joining us today to talk about it. Increasingly, people are looking to DAs to kind of be more involved publicly and be the face of criminal justice reform. We saw that in Philadelphia. We're seeing that here. And especially it being such a big issue in Brooklyn. So when you ran, you pledged to reform Brooklyn justice and restore confidence in it, which I think everybody has been calling for all over the boroughs, but especially in Brooklyn. The 2020 action plan is out and is around the corner. 2020 is really soon. What are the exact parameters that we can measure against to achieve success. You said you had 17 adopted recommendations, recommendations, but 70 community leaders, thinkers, police, you know, from a diverse spectrum. I guess what we're looking for is like, what are some specifics that we can actually measure success against rather than rhetoric? Sure. Well, primarily, Justice 2020 is my promise to the people of Brooklyn. When I ran, I promised people of Brooklyn that I would keep them safe, that we would not return to the bad old days of you know the 80s and 90s in Brooklyn. Public safety would matter. But I also understood, having grown up in East New York, that community trust in our justice system needed to be strengthened and improved. We have a a situation in this country, starting with the war on drugs, that led to mass incarceration. And we saw those numbers here in New York City. You had over 20,000 people waiting to be serviced in the criminal justice system, waiting detention in Rikers Island. Now those numbers have, over the last four or five years, have come down dramatically. And we've been doing that, the police department and, you know, the other people who are involved in public safety, you know, violence interrupters and people who work in the clergy and and the DA's offices have continued to manage to make Brooklyn safer. And as I became more involved with policy, not, you know, not just handling individual cases, but became involved in looking at criminal justice policy, what I saw was that we've been told that the only way to keep people safe was by a knee-jerk reaction of locking people up when they've committed a, a criminal offense. But the studies show us that, in fact, people who go to jail or prison, especially for short stays, they don't come back to the community 
babies in a better condition. They come back often with trauma. They come back often angry. They come back with less educational opportunities, less employment opportunities. This is not even controversial. And also, they're often broken apart from their intimate nuclear family. So many people who are returning home from prison are homeless, unemployed. They go back to prison in really astonishing rates because we've never done anything with them. Justice 2020 is saying there are ways to keep our community safe that is not in the over-reliance on jail or prison or incarceration, that we're going to shift our focus towards preventative measures that are going to be measured and uh, tested, and the metrics are going to look at outcomes. Speaking of the metrics, if we're jailing, to separate that out from imprisoning for a minute, many less people, and a larger share of them are already violent offenders, is there still a large group of people who are being jailed who shouldn't be? I know, you know, the state law still requires that this is about a very limited set of criteria, and I think some district attorneys are trying the margins to work around that. But has that reform, it seems that, that, that some of the, the, the rise in reform politics are happening as these policies are already taking place. As you're saying, you're offering this plan to, to jail less people as many less people are already being jailed, right? Correct. And there's, there's a reason, because as I've seen the numbers of people be released from Rikers or did not pretrial detention in the first place, we realize that it can actually be done, that the, that we can actually keep communities safe. You can actually hold people accountable for their bad actions and the, and the crimes they've committed and not over-incarcerate ourselves. And I think it's an important point of Justice 2020 is that when we do this, if we do it right, it's going to free up our limited resources to focus in on drivers of violent crimes, the people who hurt people, the people who are committing really violent acts and, and people who we need to incapacitate and send to prison so they're not going to hurt us. The problem is often prosecutors, including in my office over my career, was we thought about the sanction before we thought what was in the best interest of the accused, of the victim, and the community at large. And as we're focusing in on restorative justice. One of the things that our victims tell us is that putting someone in jail for six months or a year when I know they're going to return home and they're going to be angry and there's no resolution of the underlying disagreement problem that led to maybe an assault or you know some sort of violent interaction makes me feel less safe. We have a problem in many of our courthouses, and I think it's well known that in particular in communities of color and low-income communities, people are reluctant to participate with law enforcement. They're reluctant to come and serve as witnesses on cases and even on jury duty because I think criminal justice has not met the needs of community. You know, there are people who say, well, if someone committed a crime, I want them locked up. That's fine. But many people, especially in our communities of color and neighborhood, don't feel that that's going to keep them safe because they know the person is going to return in nine months or a year or two years and they're going to be less safe or they're going to be retaliated against by other people in the community for working with law enforcement. So can we have a better way of dealing with people to make the system actually meet their needs? And, and restorative justice, we've been working with it for a while now in Brooklyn. We've seen pretty good results in, in terms of meeting the needs of victims as well as preventing recidivism from the offenders. So these diversionary programs cost money. 
And the rhetoric here, which I think has been similar over decades, is jailing people is extremely expensive. It's inefficient. It hurts the communities that it's supposed to be protecting in certain ways. But at least in the short term, creating these programs, expanding the ones that are already there, and getting to these better results, where are those resources coming from? Are you reallocating ones that are there? Do you need additional funding for that? Like, like how is this going to work and how are you going to be able to, uh, to measure that and see what is and isn't working over the next few years? Well, part of the effort of this um, action plan is to identify and work with community-based organizations that already exist in the communities. Some communities actually have a good number of resources. Some have very few. Um, we have to be able to help them expand the kind of services they can provide, especially as we want to have people who get arrested do drug treatment or mental health treatment in their own communities. We're going to have to put pressure on the mayor's office and the governor's office and, who, and the people who control the purse strings, the city council to say the district attorney's office is saving millions of dollars now and not sending people to Rikers or upstate. Let's invest in those communities where, they're, where the people are criminally justice involved. And if we do that, and if they are willing to put money into the community, not only will we be able to divert folks back into their local communities to make them responsible for their own citizens and family members, people who are on the fringes now, right? The whole argument that people are, you know, you can see who's moving in the wrong direction. You know, people who commit small petty crimes eventually elevate to bigger crimes. We can start dealing with them right then and there by providing services. So you're, you're, you're the hammer in certain ways. And the argument in this action plan is let's do less hammering and let's not look at everyone like nails. But a lot of what you're looking for here, as you're saying, and I think this is part of why those numbers aren't there, is outside of the, the budget and the staff, which is mostly prosecutorial of a district attorney's office. So let me ask, broadly speaking, you, you have some experience here. You've been in the office since 1995. You've been acting district attorney. You're now uh, the, the elected should district attorneys be elected one, and should they be setting these policies? And is that what you're trying to do, or is this an attempt to dissuade a larger conversation uh, and a legislative one? Well, I think such incredible um, discretion in what's appropriate for a case, because ultimately, see, the police department's job is a little bit different, right? Their job is to patrol, to make the community safe, and effectuate an arrest. The DA's obligation is a little bit different. It's the obligation of fairness and justice. But we also have the function of public safety. And so if I see that what we're doing and incarcerating people and not dealing with the underlying um, conditions that they have that are causing them to be involved in our criminal justice system is not being addressed. Um, trying new things to keep the people of Brooklyn safe is part of my job. And it also relates to fundamental fairness in our justice system. Because not only is putting people in prison who don't need to be there um, a waste of taxpayers' dollars, but it's what led to you know, in particular in, in communities of color, such resentment against law enforcement in the first place. If, if it felt unfair and heavy-handed. So just back to Harry's point, do you think DAs should be in elected position? Uh, sure. I, I, You know, it's interesting. I, I believe that people should be accountable um, to their communities, and there's no better way than having to run 
Um, I believe that what I'm putting forth as Justice 2020 is ambitious. I don't see anything like that outside of Brooklyn right now. This is a, you know, I made a big promise with Justice 2020, and it's a way of, you know, maybe it's going to be a report card or some way of holding me accountable when I run for re-election in 21. Uh, So I think that's important. You know, there are other models across the country. I don't think we'll ever have it here in New York City, but in, in some parts of the country, the DA's race is a nonpartisan race, but it's still in the elected position. So expanding some of the budgets or, or relying on some of the non-government organizations and community organizations to pick up some of the cost of uh, these programs as well as bringing in city council to find the money, basically. Are these proposals that you're going to meet with city council about? Are these proposals like, what is sort of the plan in in getting that budget moving forward, getting some of that money moving forward? So it's a great question. Last year when I uh, was just elected, I met with the city council and I asked to um, money for a program that involved how we deal with drug addiction in Brooklyn and drug misuse. And I was able to secure a very large source of funding from the city council for a program called Brooklyn Clear. And this is exactly the kind of thing that Justice 2020 is all about. Brooklyn Clear is a program that works with the police department that says when people get arrested for low-level possession of drugs, it could be marijuana, it could be cocaine, it could be heroin, that two things should happen. We should always try to issue a desk appearance ticket, um, not put people through the criminal justice system and have them sit in central booking or on Rikers Island to get a court date to get treatment. The other part is that instead of taking a heavy law enforcement approach, we were going to focus it as a public health issue. So I've contracted, my office is contracted with a service provider um, 24 hours a day, you know, 365 days a year. I have peer drug counselors who will meet a person who gets arrested at a precinct who's eligible for a DAT and say the DA does not want to prosecute this case as a criminal matter. You will get seven days to work with me, your peer counselor, to get you into treatment, whether it be drug treatment, it could be mental health treatment, it could be other social services that they think they need. Um, There's also an immediate screening to see whether or not the person is at risk of overdosing. Um, If that, they'll take them right to the hospital. And If they get into the program, I'll monitor the program for 30 days, no more than 45 days. It's a harm reduction model. It's about substantial participation. People have to be ready um, to receive treatment. I don't believe that um, requiring abstinence is uh, what the criminal justice system should require. We should require that people are working on their their issues, their addiction issues. Um, And if they do that, I won't prosecute the case. The The result of that is in our first year in Brooklyn, there were over 400 fewer people that have entered the criminal justice system and um, had to plead guilty to a crime in order to get services. You don't have to plead guilty. You're going to get services. Um, And if you're an immigrant um, in in this country, you don't have to get arrested and be put through the system that... The collateral consequences for you is tremendous, but it's also grounded in science. It's also grounded in this is a public health issue. I often get asked about deterrence. Aren't you afraid that that's not going to deter someone? And I say if a person is not afraid of dying because and people are overdosing, you know, 
throughout this country. We've had a, we had 351 people overdose in 2017 from using heroin or an opioid, and now we have fentanyl and cocaine and, and all kinds of drugs. If that fear is not going to prevent them from using the, the fear that some DA is going to send you to, you know, central booking is not going to. Clear is exactly like what Justice 2020 is about. It's about using our criminal justice system in ways that make sense. Yeah, I have a role. I'm going to monitor the person. I'm going to, but I'm not going to put them in jail to help them fight their addiction. I'm going to do it from the outside. And you helped secure funding. Well, the city council gave me a tremendous amount of money. They gave me $800,000 to do this work. And then last this year for our budget, the mayor's office has agreed to fund it. So this is a program um, that will pay for itself easily because it will be the largest pre-arraignment diversion program in New York State because we're the largest borough. Um, And so we are going to save money by not having people come through the system, um, spend nights in central booking, ultimately putting people on Rikers Island so they can wait for a bed to get treatment. How many people get arraigned? How many people get diverted this way with $800,000 worth of funding, just to put this in some perspective? Well, the the funding is for the is for the first year, so we haven't even gone through a full year yet. Because I think we we I announced a program in March. It was only in six precincts of Brooklyn, and then in September of eighteen, it went to the entirety of Brooklyn. So you know, the funding will last me to September of nineteen, but then again, the city the mayor's office will fund the rest. We think that. It depends on the number of arrests that the police department make for possession. Um, so far, from from September to now, it's been about 400 people. Can I ask, you've been in the office since 1995. You, you took on a top leadership role in the office when Ken Thompson became district attorney, then we're acting district attorney, now we're elected. What cases, when you were working individual cases, would you have, have handled differently or if you look back on from from this new role, and and what looks different when you're you're sort of seeing the system from a a higher up vantage point? I guess. Well, I remember fairly um, early in my career, I was uh, tasked to try a person who was uh, selling heroin, and he sold two bags of heroin to an undercover police officer. Uh, he did not have any other heroin on him, but he had to buy money for the heroin. And at the time, the Rockefeller drug laws were still in existence, So, uh, and he had a criminal record. He had one prior arrest. So he was looking at a plea offer of 6 to 12. We were negotiating, and um, right before the case sort of fell apart, the negotiations fell apart, there had been an offer made by the judge of one and a third to four. And we thought that was a fair resolution considering, you know, what he was facing if he went to trial. Uh, He chose to go to trial. Uh, He was convicted. And at the end, he received, I believe, you know, the maximum, which was he either got 12 to 24 or 12 and a half to 25. But I remember, you know, walking out of that courthouse feeling like this can't be justice. And we were just ready to give this guy one and a third to four. Everyone was fine. The judge was fine. I was fine. My supervisor was fine. And at the end, he wound up getting you know, either 12 to 24, 12 and a half to 25, which was at the top range of the sentence. Um, and those are the kind of you know, situations that have led many people who 
believe that being a prosecutor is a noble job to at some point uh, move on because those kinds of outcomes, there's no celebration in that. And it's not, and, and I, I want to be clear, it's not just that I feel bad for that defendant who got a really difficult sentence. I look at that and say, wow, all the money and tax dollars we're spending keeping him in jail for a guy who was not a threat to public safety. Prison, right? Yeah. Prison, upstate mm -hmm. prison. And without no, nothing to be done to prevent the next person from selling that two bag of heroin. Justice 2020, what we, when we look at this, you know, part of this is a very aggressive criminal justice platform, which says when we do these takedowns or when we go into neighborhoods and we arrest a bunch of people who are committing acts of violence, that we're also trying to prevent the next group of kids from filling, you know, young men from filling those roles. So it's a lot, a lot of intervention. It's about getting them the resources that they need to try to prevent them from, to, from picking up that gun or from, you know, starting to sell the drugs. It's a, it's a very aggressive agenda in terms of getting to people by working with the community, identifying who's most at risk, and saying, we're going to provide you services so you don't go that way. NYPD has something very similar that I'm a part of called Ceasefire. Um, the difference with Ceasefire is that the criticism is that it's big government, you know, big brother watching these gang members and, and, and maybe... Maybe kids who are in the same buildings as it gets criticized and, uh, you know, go to the same schools and are maybe not leaders of actual criminal organizations. Exactly. And it's and the it's a very heavy handed approach because it says if any of shooting takes place, you're all going to be held accountable, even if it's not, you know, even if you have no role in stopping it. Um, this is this is about us saying we just took it in the an action here and now we want to fill that void by providing services so the next group of young men don't think that they need to fill that void but it takes a while to get from one group of young men to another it's like it's maybe say five years um to start going from from young man to a potentially violent young person to, to through these parts so in that stretch of time and as you're working on these reform measures in the last two months, the the murder rate in Brooklyn, these things go up and down, is way up. You've had not just the Post, which has been doing this stuff for, for 30 years, but like the New York Times saying, you know, um, is this the start of the, uh, the return of violence? I think everyone has been worried that at some point, you know, we're going to go in a different direction in the city because the numbers have gone to such historic lows. You know, the good news for the people of Brooklyn, um, it's never been lower in my lifetime. We had under 100 homicides last year. We had, you know, 103 less shootings than two years ago. But it's never been a straight decline, right? It's always been with, you know, ups and downs. Like, the, you know, there's, there's a bunch of shootings one month. You read about it in the paper. It was a bloody weekend. Seven people shot. You know, four people murdered, and then we put resources, you know, police resources, DA resources. We clamped down on the violence, and we continue to go down. Part of Justice 20... Well, th that's numbers, right? But within numbers, there's also that somebody who's been diverted into some program that you've been calling for is going to go and do a very bad and terrible thing, the sort of thing that gets you on the front page sure. of the Post. 
and the the calls then for uh, why wasn't this kid say locked up are going to be incredibly loud when the RFK people did this mass bailout thing, which I, I think was incompetently done a whole number of different ways. But, I, you know, the Post was literally tracking individual people, seeing if they showed up for court cases and pretty much rooting for, for, for one of them to do something terrible to say, look, you know, you, you see what happens when you don't deal with these people. Right. And I understand that that's a risk. And I think that's a... It's a certainty that, that yeah. someone's going to do something bad. Do you right? have like a plan, like uh, to, to meet those kind of uh, political and public pressure? I think there's a lot of support uh, for what I'm doing. And, you know, there's going to be the criticisms for those who want DAs to be the hammer against all the nails. Uh, I, But we know, there's a few things we know. And what we do know is that we're not going to jail or incarcerate ourselves to safety because what we've done is the opposite in the last five years. We need to make sure that we're focusing in on the right drivers of crime, that people who are dangerous are all the resources and all the might of the office is used to incapacitate them so they're not going to hurt anyone. Uh, but we can't, we can't put every young person in jail or everyone who's arrested in jail for the fear that one of them may come out and, and, and do something terrible. That's an injustice. That's not fairness. Um, and again, it is the worst expenditure of our resources. If we could, we can use those resources to make our communities a more safe and healthy place. I'm not an apologist for anyone who commits an, a violent crime. Um, you know, I... So, so as the numbers have really gone down of how many people are being held in Rikers, of how many people are being stopped and frisked, and some of the disparities remain, you're, you're arguing that some of the wrong people are still being arrested, over-policed, and put into the system. Is that is that fair to say? It's absolutely fair to say. Uh, but we've also done something now. I've been the DA for 14 months. Uh, I've reduced the number of people going to... Rikers Island in, you know, the, well, if I add the time I was the acting DA, on new admissions on misdemeanors by 58%, right? So I've already reduced the number of people Brooklyn is sending to Rikers Island on misdemeanors by 58% over the last two years. But just in the last year, that number was 43%, less people sent to Rikers Island to be held pre-detention. Um, and our crime rate did not go up. Right. I don't, and I, I'm going to say this no one is going to be able to show a correlation between um, incarcerating people and low crime rates. In fact, what you've seen really since the 2000s is that as incarceration rates have gone down, public safety has gone up. We've seen that, I mean, not just in New York City, but throughout you know, the country. But New York City has been very stark. In the last five years, the number of people being held in, held in jails, in local jails, has plummeted. And our safety in this city has gone increasingly in the direction of public safety. So the irrational fear of crime that says if people are out, they're more likely to commit crime. I can't argue that that's never going to happen. But what I could say is that what we see in the city is just the opposite happening. We're seeing our 
number of people in jail go down each and every year, and, and we're making tremendous progress in terms of violence. Um, so that's one of the things. But I promised the people of Brooklyn that I was going to keep them safe. Part of the metrics that we we're talking about is I'm going to be looking at making sure our numbers are always moving in the right direction. So you've talked a lot about addiction and there's a you know, there's other stuff that's coming up a lot, especially right now. And uh, the candidates in Queens are talking about decriminalization models for sex work. And, uh, and, and that's sort of been a big issue over the past week, especially with some organizations like Decrim NY calling for complete decriminalization of all sex work. And then other organizations worried that in doing so, you are not only helping keep sex workers safe, but you are also making it legal for pimping. So like that, mm-hmm. that's ba- that's the question. Um, where do you fall on decriminalizing and, you know, uh, and how to keep sex workers safe from human trafficking and pimping and, but also not punish them? Like where, where do you guys stand so it's on a, that? It's a good question. We have a program already in Brooklyn that, when a person is uh, arrested for uh, prostitution, that they go to a very specialized court part. It's a one of the special court parts in the city in which the entire purpose of the part is not to punish them. It's to offer services to make sure that the women who are engaged in sex work actually want to be involved in sex work. Um, and if they are, they're they're given you sort of you know the warnings about things the bad things can can happen but most importantly they're there to screen out for human trafficking to say I'm this is against my will I'm being either sex trafficked or labor trafficked um, and you know I can see a willingness to not prosecute loitering for prostitution but we want to make sure that we're not tying our hands behind our backs with this trafficking trafficking is real um i can tell you that i see so many young girls and i'm talking about 13 14 15 16 year old girls being trafficked in brooklyn uh, we have a very active uh, human trafficking unit. And so I would sit down and would convene meetings with women organizations and people who would help me understand whether or not this makes sense to support this kind of legislation. So right now you're saying it's still imperfect, but the best way to look for human trafficking is still to arrest. But you guys are, are no longer sentencing or you would call would, – would there be any – kind of on the books rules on that as far as well it's current d it's a current brooklyn da's policy we don't seek any kind of you know jail or any kind of program and i don't use evidence that if someone has condoms on them i won't use that type of evidence in our cases um, what i'm concerned about are people who are being um, prostituted against their will so, or sex trafficked so i'm willing to work with the people in our communities who best understand this work um, to figure out how we do that work uh, but no one in brooklyn is going to jail for sex work the only people that we're sanctioning and punishing and sending to prison are pimps and but but they're still being brought in. Yeah, and Johns are also being brought in in Brooklyn as well. Um, we you know we uh, we have a program in Brooklyn as well to uh, deal with uh, people who are out there you know paying for sex. And Hall and Martins and the uh, unfortunate 
a situation in which they are not charged for the alleged rape that took place, the ex-NYPD officers um, of the underage girl. Where are you guys on that? Is that something you guys are talking about still? Is that something that you guys are working with community members about, with the young women about? As far as keeping trust in the community. Thanks for asking that question. You know, first and foremost, my office is continuing to prosecute these two former police officers. Um, I believe, without any shadow of a doubt, what they did was a crime. Um, I wish that I had the ability to charge them with the rape, you know, the new law. Unfortunately, we did the research. It's not ex post facto. Um, during the prosecution of the case, and I can be very general here because it's still a pending active case. We still represent the victim. There are things that came out during the the case that there were false or inconsistent statements that were not the typical type of inconsistencies or issues that come out just because someone is you know dealing with trauma or been a rape victim you know we have very experienced prosecutors now special victims bureau i started my career actually as a special victims ada for two and a half years i was in our sex crimes bureau they were troubling things that came out during the case that we had a, a legal and ethical obligation to report to the court and to the defense attorneys we did we asked for a special prosecutor because we were in such a, a pickle with this issue, you know, trying to represent her to the fullest extent of the law, but also having to confront inconsistencies and problems that were unusual. Um, Ultimately, the judge has um, required us to pursue, you know, continue the thing. So we did what the best that we can do. But I want to be really clear to any woman who is a victim of a sex crime that my office will take the case very seriously. In fact, we did 100% 100% believe Anna Chambers, you know, that's not her real name, but the name that she uses publicly. Um, we we believe the allegations. We went forward. Um, we indicted the officers for, you know, top count rape in the first degree. Uh, unfortunately, um, and fortunately for the people of Brooklyn, you have a district attorney who understands his, his legal and ethical obligations. And, you know, I'm disappointed with how the case is handled in the public, but the way we're handling in the courtroom, our lawyers are handling with the highest regard, ethical regards, and I think that should promote confidence in our justice system. You know, we learn a lot about this in our wrongful conviction work, because there were a lot of cases that people went back later and said, why would you continue to prosecute the case, or why would you continue to do this when the case was so flawed or you learned things? And the answer was always the same, because we thought the person is guilty. There is no disagreement in my office that we believe Halls and Martin should be held responsible and they committed a crime, but it's the way the DAs, especially the DAs who have to try that case, have to conduct themselves in the courtroom. And I'm proud of the way they've chosen to conduct themselves and the way that my office has handled this case. Could they have foreseen this pickle earlier on? Well, I I think that some of it, you know, some inconsistencies, I mean, the defense has made, you know, the... um, has said that, that some of this was, but we do, we, we look at cases, we take these cases very seriously. It is not unusual for victims of violent 
um, cases, and especially a young 18-year-old girl who was subjected to this kind of uh, conduct for her to be impacted by trauma. And we understand that trauma does impact memory. We understand that trauma, we've learned this with eyewitness identifications and other things. Trauma is a real factor in, in, in doing this work. Um, so I think there were some things that maybe we thought were the type of usual things that may be inconsistent in, in trial testimony. But as the case continued, we became more and more concerned. And at the time that that happens, you know, our, it is our obligation to let the court know what's going on. And we did. And, and, and I think those are lessons that Eric Gonzalez learned from looking at wrongful convictions. Because there's no one who's going to say in my office, we don't think that Halls and Martin should be held accountable. And I think this is where we're going to close, but can you speak about the role your office is, should be, and will be playing in terms of uh, policing the police and holding them accountable when necessary? And, you know, as Errol also brought up, given your cooperation necessarily with the police department. Part of uh, the recommendations that I received was that there are two categories of cases in um, in Brooklyn, I'm sure it's throughout the city, that they want to see the DA's office do a better job in uh, hate crimes, and they wanted to see us do a better job in holding the police accountable. So I created a new hate crimes bureau with dedicated lawyers. For the first time, we now have a new um, law enforcement accountability bureau that's going to do more than just brutality cases. We had a civil rights unit that looked at you know force, but this unit is going to be working with IAB and CCRB on police misconduct and credibility issues. Uh, you know, the police department does a lot of integrity tests. We're going to be working with them to be doing integrity tests and to be making sure that the police department that we're helping to um, prevent misconduct in in law enforcement. Are you going to work with the officers who judges have specifically said their testimony is incredible, which seems to be happening with increasing frequency? Those are going to be by case by case. Um, they're going to be officers who we um, interview and believe that these are discretionary decisions by judges and, and sometimes we disagree with them. But what we're always going to do is make sure that our adversaries, the, the defense attorneys and the new judge knows about that. You know, in the past, we haven't done a very good job in turning over these kind of uh, giglio materials, often because we didn't know about it. Um, part of working closer with the police department is to make sure that they're providing that information about officers. And so this person who is, it's a unit with some dedicated lawyers, but I have a, a very seasoned prosecutor who's the head of it, is going to be the point person with PD to get bad, that kind of bad information out, the credibility um, determinations from PD to make sure we're turning it over. And not just turning it over at the eve of trial, but turning it over earlier so that when people are making decisions about whether or not you know, they should take a plea because what the evidence is, they know if the witness is credible or not. And that's been a point of contention, um, I think, for us and, you know, for us prosecutors and the police department, because often they don't want that turned over until the end. We think, at least I think, that that information should be made available as early as possible. So 50A is the decades-old state law meant to protect public workers' privacy. Since 2016, it's been reinterpreted to mean the police disciplinary records are no longer public. 
not just for newspaper reporters, but also for prosecutors. Is that getting in the way? Yes, um, 50A is in the way. And, you know, I understand that the police unions want that to protect their members. Uh, But for me as the district attorney, we need as much information so that we can make our own credibility determinations earlier in cases, that we can figure out what's an appropriate plea bargain. And I think that the defense attorneys have an absolute right to know things that um, impact whether or not the evidence is credible. Last Truly, last question. I get four. Usually, when I <laughs> he usually does get about four or five, and then he takes six. I, I wait until Orange starts <laughs> prodding me in the back. Um, why, with elected prosecutors and district attorneys in cities, is this push for reform happening now? The electorate hasn't changed that substantially, and clearly there's this demand for it, which is part of the argument perhaps for electing district attorneys, is that they're accountable to voters, and voters are asking for different things from the justice system. What are your thoughts as someone who's been through this and has been a prosecutor for a long time on on, on why the, the market demand seems to be rising? It's a good question for me. Um, I've given my life to serving the people of Brooklyn to make communities safer um, and to promote trust in what the work that we do, to, you know, to make sure that we have a just and fair system. And, you know, throughout Brooklyn, especially when I was campaigning, I heard this from virtually every community. It didn't matter if they were black or white or Jewish or Hispanic or Chinese or other ethnics, the criminal justice system doesn't care about us when we're victims and when we're accused of a crime because we're different they the criminal justice system wants to hammer us to make an example of us and i heard that throughout brooklyn and i've heard people say the criminal justice system is broken Um, i've committed my life to doing this work and i want to make sure that the work that my office does is starting to repair the belief that we don't have a fair and just criminal justice system. We have among the best criminal justice systems in the world. We have the presumption of innocence. We have due process. We have to have people in our in our system believe that our justice system works for everyone. And I think that the reform movement um, stems from the fact that, you know, mass incarceration and other things that we see now is proof that the system was not working as intended to work. Thank you. I hope we'll talk in 2020 to to see how the 2020 plan is coming at that point. And uh, for taking the time today. Thank you, Harry. Good luck with this. Thank you so much. F-A-Q. And now, now, to tell us what is going on with all the big crazy court cases in New York City right now is Victoria Bickhampus. Hi, Alex. How are you today? I'm good. I'm just curious. What's the hot goss going on uh, in the New York City courts? Well, we got two interesting murder cases. The first is the Pilmar case. We've got a wife and her brother who were convicted of killing her husband um, because, you know, a prosecutor said that she stood to gain financially. Oh, um, like a movie. Exactly. And then the other case involves a husband who's accused of killing his estranged wife. It's the Kovlin case. Roderick Kovlin is accused of strangling her but making it seem as if she had you know uh, died in the bathtub accidentally but the real real interesting goss this week is going to be taking place in uh, the criminal courts it's, it hasn't been a very good week uh, for 
Trump's people in Manhattan courts. Uh, the big thing that just came down was that Paul Manafort, who was just sentenced today in D.C. and is now facing a total of seven and a half years in federal court for a whole variety of crimes that I'm not even going to get into, um, he was just indicted in Manhattan. You know, that means he is in more legal trouble. So he could maybe get more years? Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. Even if Trump pardons him for the federal stuff, that wouldn't prevent him from getting charged in state court. Oh, because Trump can't pardon him for local crime. Correct. Specifically, uh, Manafort is accused of mortgage fraud scheme. Shady mortgages. It's a mortgage fraud scheme. What did you compare it to once? The Wire. I <laughs> I would say that the comparison I th often make to The Wire with, you know, white-collar crimes, oftentimes it's the little things that will get somebody in trouble in a big way. So, for example, if you, you know, if a person, like, knowingly does something that's false on, you know, a mortgage application, they can be in a lot of trouble. So maybe you have, maybe you're a prosecutor and you have someone, and I'm not saying that this is the case with Manafort, but just generally, say you have someone and you know that they're guilty of something big. Maybe you can't prove it for whatever reason. You Maybe you do, as you know, prosecutor, you do a little more digging. Maybe you don't find the big thing, but maybe you find that one little thing on a form that you're not supposed to lie on, and then bam, that's how you could be in criminal trouble. Like Al Capone exactly. was never, right. It Al was Capone, the taxes. Exactly. It was, it was the never taxes. the murder. It, yes, exactly. That's the perfect example. So that's going to be interesting because, you know, the Manafort case, I don't know if it's actually going to be like the same courthouse. Is there like a couple of different courthouses that handle, you know, criminal issues? Um, but it's, you know, the same, you know, in, you know, court system, Manhattan criminal arena where actually Harvey Weinstein's being handled as well. So if there's any overlap timing wise, it's going to be like. Dude, New York courts is killing it this year. Oh, We've got oh. El Chapo, Manafort, Cohen. I mean, I mean, I'm biased because I love courts, but, you know, I just think that they're endlessly interesting. But then, you know, moving on to the other craziness with uh, Trump. Our main craziness. Our main craziness and I say craziness as in the chaos surrounding a situation I am not imparting bias one way or another um Giuliani was in court on Wednesday in his divorce proceeding his third divorce doing what Giuliani does best getting divorced very publicly <laughs> well yes and what a public divorce it appears to be playing out to be so a couple of things we learned in court today the first is that Giuliani's lawyers accused his estranged wife uh, Ju uh, Judith uh, Nathan Giuliani of uh, that they happen to be at the same country club and his lawyers accused her of taking photos of him and like basically making him uncomfortable when he was at a table uh, photos of him how is he like, accusing her of revenge porn no 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 okay. just like they were at the same country club and his lawyers are like oh she was taking photos and like we don't want them you know we we you know we don't want them near each other he wants to be left alone and then her lawyers are like, well, actually, what happened is that she was in the gift shop at this country club and Giuliani was like startled or embarrassed and like, you know, yelled at her. And the judge is just like, already he's over it. Uh, he's like, okay, you're saying one thing. You're, they're saying another thing. Here's what we're going to do. I'm paraphrasing here, guys. Oh, it's are you? The judge isn't like... <laughs> 
Here's what we're going to do. Yeah. The judge isn't like slapping his elbows down, you know. Oh, on. I wish he was. Yeah. I, I wish, I you know, I wish, I wish he were like a vaping judge because that would just add to like the frustration level, you know, like. <laughs> Furiously like, vaping. Yeah, like, fuck it. I'm just going to jewel because, okay, you know, um, no vaping in the courtroom. Um, no, but um, so the judge is like, okay, here's what we're going to do. If one of you is at a country club or wherever and one of you's already in the room and the other person comes into the room, person who's there last has to just go to another room. Like, just stay apart, you guys. You know, kids, you know. Um, and he's, you know, he said, the judge said in court, well, you know, this is looking up to be like a very complicated, very acrimonious divorce. And he was not very happy. At one point, Giuliani was so frustrated during the proceeding, he grumbled quite audibly because I could hear it. That that's bullshit. <laughs> he grumbled bullshit. He grumbled bullshit. Um, I can't tell whether the judge heard, but you know, people in the gallery could definitely hear. I, I can look up my uh, my story for the Daily Beast on this. I I wrote it down. I can't recall speaking about it, whether it was that's bullshit or that's total bullshit. It was one of the two. He used the word bullshit in a very loud grumble in court. Uh, which is just yet another testament to how this is this is going to play out to be a total circus. E- yeah, the judge is. Just I like, mean, how long is the judge looking at? Like, we're talking months, or we're talking years? Acrimony and divorceimony. I honestly don't know. But we're probably expecting like a gajillion of these little piddly oh, oh, nonsense. Oh, 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 another disputes. thing. Another thing was that his lawyers are like she's hiding bank accounts from Giuliani, and then. Her lawyer said, oh, well, these two bank accounts, there's $100 in them. So there's a lot of back and forth about little things right now. You know, she's accused of hiding her jewelry. So, you know, because appraising jewelry is part of what's called, you know, the discovery process. And then the discovery process in a divorce, very fancy term for basically just saying, Everyone empty your pockets. Empty your pockets on the table right now. Yeah. And then she'd also accused him of not paying for her mom's nursing home as he had promised. He insists that he had paid... Oh, the other kind of interesting detail. Her lawyer had claimed that he filled out a change of address form for her without her consent so that all of her mail Mm. would go to him. His attorney vehemently, is it vehemently or vehemently? I'm tired. I I can't speak I think it's vehemently. I think neither of those things you just said is the correct (laughs) pronunciation at all. But I love, I love that you, grammar editor extraordinaire and fantastic courts reporter that I look to with admiration. I don't know how to pronounce things. This is what the city does to you folks. Choose you up and it spits you out. (laughs) Oh, oh, and then the other kind of Trump world thing involving legal system in New York courts and stuff. Tish James is investigating, doing civil investigations involving you know, um, Trump businesses, like with regards to the, to some banks. I think it went well. I think it went well. I think it went really well. I think it went really well. Yeah. 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 FAQNYC is brought to you by a grant from Civil, the media company reinventing the economics of journalism with blockchain. FAQ is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research at NYU. This episode was recorded in Alex Brooklyn's rent-regulated tenement apartment in Greenwich Village. FAQ was originally conceived by Ozzie Pabra, Harry Siegel, and Christina Greer. Our In the Courts reporter is Victoria Bekempis, and our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. Our sound engineer and recordist is Adam Kamara. Oh, believe it or not, no. I'm walking on air. Stop it. Stop it. Goodbye. Goodbye. News. 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 New York City. F. F.
A-Q. A-Q.